Hey, it's good to be with you. There's been, um, I don't know if you know, there's been some pretty serious grumbling by the women, by some of the women in our church about a pretty serious issue that's going on right now, and that is that the television show Fixer Upper with Chip and Joanna Gaines is being moved to Discovery Plus, a streaming service that will cost you $5 a month, which means now that the dynamic duo <laughs> and their where they go in and they remodel these broken down houses, that will no longer be free, thus confirming that the year 2021 will be just as terrible as the year 2020, and somehow we'll have to survive. I realize that there's a billion of these shows out there, and there's really only one king of the hill, okay? So it's Fixer Upper. But before, I want you to know that before there was Fixer Upper, there was another show called Extreme Makeover, Home Edition. It was on ABC. You guys know this show? And uh, it was the first that brought the wow factor for families that were really struggling. So here's a picture of a home from that series uh, in South Carolina belonging to the Suggs family. They were a family whose heart was so big, they couldn't stop saying no to foster kids. And so they just kept bringing them in. But their house, as you can see, was really not so well suited for that. And so when ABC heard their story, uh, they decided to grace them with an extreme makeover. And in one week, they transformed their house from that into that. That's amazing. That doesn't even look like the same house. It looks like they tore the whole thing down and started over. Now, what's crazy is that the Bible, did you know that the Bible actually says that there is a sense in which that is supposed to be true about each one of us. That for those of us who are in Christ, Paul says, the old is gone, the new has come. We are to be a new creation in Christ. Think about that. Look at that picture, the old, the old and the new, the before and the after, and think about that. The Bible doesn't shy away from it, that Christ brings about extreme makeover in each one of his people. What would that mean for you and I? What does that look like? We've just spent the last five weeks looking at the heart of Jesus on full and beautiful display, his compassion, his intentionality, his willingness, his love. And what we're asking this morning is what would it look like for the heart of Jesus to fully transform and make over the lives of his people? What if the spirit and heart of Jesus lived inside of me? What would that look like? Renovation in my life. The passage that we're going to look at this morning talks all about what that renovation is supposed to look like. And I want you to notice that this is not something that's meant for heaven. It's not meant for when we just get to heaven. That's when all this new creation stuff starts to happen. It's right now. And you're going to see that Paul talks about that in the passage. And it's a project that's meant for all of creation. God's renovation project is about the whole creation. And this passage is about what that looks like. What's meant to happen when God's grace sweeps through and begins transforming the lives of his people in the church. One of the funnier moments uh, on this show, on this particular episode, is when the neighbors walk by that new house and the wife's eyes are popping out of her head. She's in disbelief. And the husband sort of very nonchalantly, unfazed by it all, goes, 
There's something different about that place. I can't, put, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something different about that place. And she's like, come on, man. You know, she hits him on. Here's the question I think is being posed for us this morning. What would it look like for the community around us, for the people in your life, to say, I can't put my finger on it, but there's something different about him. There's something different about her. There's something different about that church. Well, Romans 12, 9 through 21, is the answer to that question. What would it look like when the heart of Jesus takes over and makes over the church? So let's look at this passage together, starting in verse 9. It says, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, this chapter says, in view of God's mercy to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice and not to be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. So Lord God, we pray that in whatever way you would bring about transformation, we would no longer be conformed to the desires and dreams of the world around us, but instead we would have your heart and your word imprinted on us and making us shine as new creation. That can only happen as your spirit comes through the power of your word, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So this passage, this little chunk is really about two things. Number one, it's about how God's transformed people are to relate to others within the Christian community, to insiders. And then it's also about how God's transformed people relate to outsiders, to those who are outside the faith. And so Paul's answer to the question, the first question, how do we relate to people who are inside the church, is we relate as a family. We relate as a family. Be devoted, verse 10, to one another in brotherly love. It's, it's Valentine's Day. It's about love today, right? But love is one of those words that is so diluted in our culture. 
that we often don't think of it as particularly radical or extreme. But the culture that Paul was writing in in the first century, this Greek culture, it would have been viewed as totally countercultural to live this way. It would have been extreme. In fact, there was a Greek writer, his name was Lucian of Samosata, who lived in the first century, and he wrote a lot about the growth of Christianity from his perspective, and he was a skeptic. He did not like Christians at all. And here's what he said as he observed the community of people following Jesus. He said, their founder persuades them that they should be like brothers to one another and therefore despise their own privacy and view all their possessions as common property. You see, he recognized how extreme it would be for a group of people to start looking at one another and saying every other person who has experienced the gospel of Jesus Christ and inviting Christ into their life, that they would now view one another as brothers and sisters, that is radical. That is totally extreme. Do we think of it that way? And so what would make that so extreme? Well, one is that family relationships are to be marked by a non-selectivity. We don't get to choose who our family is. Secondly, family relationships are to be marked by non-privacy. That means that God's family is in each other's business in ways that can make us uncomfortable. And it also means, thirdly, that family relationships are marked by non-safety. That these relationships will have the potential to hurt you. You will enter into them and you might get hurt. You probably will. Non-selective, non-private not safe. Welcome to the family of God. I mean, who would want to sign up for this? Come to discovery class. It's going to be great. Why would we do this? Well, let's look at verse 10. It says, be, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Brotherly love, that's one of those uh, Greek words that everybody knows. It's Philadelphia. And uh, it means brotherly love, love of brothers. But the first word in verse 10 is be devoted to one another. And that's another word that describes family love. It's philistorge, philistorge. And it means that there's a bondedness and a loving affection. And what that is saying is that when we come together as the family of God, we should be experiencing this family bonding and loving affection for one another. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves. You may have read that. One of the loves that he talked about was storge and he says that there's something special about storge love as it compares to the others he says that all the other loves require some merit on either the part of the one giving the love or on the part of the one receiving the love so if you take agape for example which is about self-sacrificial love we would have to say that the person giving that kind of love, there's a merit and a beauty about their character that allows them to live self-sacrificially towards other people. If you think about eros love, that's romantic love, love between two people who are in love, and you would say that there's a, a quality of beauty and attraction on the part, of the part of the person who's being loved. And so what Lewis is saying is in all these other loves, for the per each person is bringing something to the table for it to work, but not with storge. Because storge is this beautiful picture 
of an infant, a mother's love for her infant, and the infant's love for its mother. It's this built-in, ready-made love that requires nothing. It's just there. It's kind of this automatic, natural, deep bond between two people. That's the Greek word, philostorge. Here's what Lewis says about it. Storge is non-discriminating. Friends and lovers will say that they were, quote, made for each other. But the special glory of Storge is that it unites those who are most emphatically and even comically not. Storge exists between two people who, if they had not found themselves in the same household or community, would have nothing to do with each other. You guys have a sibling like that? Somebody in your home where you're like, you know, I love them. But if I had to have picked them to be my friend, I probably never would have chosen that particular person. And, and Lewis says there's a love like that. And that is love is storge, exists between two people in the same family who normally would have nothing to do with each other. And the reality is we all have people like that, even within the church. Lewis goes on to say this. I love this quote. Growing fond of old so-and-so simply because he happened to be there because you were thrown together in the same family or the same platoon or the same ship. There's a wonder about that. For when you begin to say, though she's not my sort of person, she's really very good in her own way, you've crossed the frontier. It means you're getting beyond your own idiosyncrasies. You're beginning to appreciate goodness or intelligence in and of themselves. It's not merely goodness or intelligence flavored and served to suit your taste and views and your own palate. And then Lewis adds, dogs and cats should always be brought up together. It broadens their minds so. <laughs> Isn't that great? I love that. So we're dogs and cats. Here's this very important word for our community, philostorgates, this deep sense of connection and bondedness between people that are just given to you. There's a lot of you that would not pick me, but I'm given to you, and you're given to me. And you have this sense of connection. You see, you begin to see things. This is what Andrew was talking about. You begin to see things when we commit to one another that you would have never seen otherwise, and to begin to appreciate it. That's pretty extreme, because guess what? Everyone else in the world, how do they choose to use their time? And who do they choose to spend it, spend it with? With people who have the same hobbies? who have the same interests, of the same intelligent level, people who vote the same way. And how does all that polariz how's that polarization working out for us in the world around us? It's not very good. Look at verse 16. Don't be proud. Be willing to associate with people in a lower position. You know, in America, we're really, really fascinated with celebrity culture. Two years ago, we moved, my wife and I and family and kids, we moved from Dahlonega. And the biggest celebrity in Dahlonega was Zach Brown, the country music singer. And so when he would show up, if you were on the square and you were in the little coffee shop looking out the window, you could just see all the phones popping out. And everybody trying to get a selfie and everybody followed him around the square and trying to get the signature. And, uh, and it, it's because we think when we do that, in some way it moves our status up. But actually, the Bible says that people who get grace begin to do the exact opposite. They begin to understand that the only association that elevates me is my association with Jesus Christ. 
that the gospel is helping me understand that there is no one walking the earth that's better than me and no one that is worse than me. That we, there's only one type of person and it's the type of person who needs the grace of God more than anything else, just like I do. And the one person that I want to be thrilled about being in their presence is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when I pick the least likely person in the room and I begin to look at people who are not just like me culturally and socially and financially, Jesus says, you're choosing to associate with me. And when that kind of non-selectivity marks God's people, something starts to happen in our lives. We might look around and go, I don't drink alcohol at all. Not at all. But there's people in, my, in this congregation that not only drink it, they make it. They like to make it. That's weird. There's people in this church that homeschool, and then there's people that don't. There's people in this church that have no kids, and some have seven. Some like sports. Some like the arts. Some people in this congregation voted Democrat. Some voted third party. Some voted Republican. Some people are cooler than me. Some people are more sophisticated. But you know what? I'm starting to not care anymore. I am beginning to feel a love and a connection that maybe I actually don't feel with the people who are usually just like me. What is that coming from? It's, becoming from, it's coming from the gospel of Jesus, who's teaching us to stop, stop selecting. Because when we stop selecting, we, we experience and give unconditional love. And it's a wonder to be on this journey of grace together. The Christian community is to be marked by an incredible lack of snobbishness toward people of different personalities and temperaments and races and classes. That's pretty radical. That's an extreme makeover. But secondly, the nature of brotherly love in the Christian community is also non-private. <laughs> this one's fun. You know, you know who's especially excited in a family about non-privacy? Teenagers. Oh, boy. They really love it when uh, the family says, hey, I want to look in your closet. I want to look in your glove compartment. Let me snoop around in your dresser drawers. Teenagers say, what are you doing? I'm not a kid anymore. But you know what parents know? Parents all know that we're still legally liable. And so if we just let our kids run wild and we don't keep our eye on them, and it all goes south, we're still held responsible. So sorry, teenagers, there's privacy, but there's a limit to it. Because in a family, there's accountability and interdependency. And that's the nature of a family. It means the church is not like a club. In a club, there's a particular reason that you get together. And so if you're in the hunting club here in Dahlonega, if the, or in Carrollton, if there is one, then what that means is that when you get together with the people in your club, you want to talk about, uh, you know, when season is about to start and where are the migrating, migrating habits of the big game that you're looking for. But what you do not expect anybody to ask you about in the hunting club is your dating life. And why are you dating her? And, hey, I heard that you're uh, running into some financial trouble. How is it going paying down your debt? You would say, that's none of your business. We're hunting. That's why we're together. But in a family, right, all that stuff is open and privy to everyone. What's happening in your life is a part of my life. And so when my kids are struggling 
And when my wife is struggling, we're all in it together. Listen to verse 9. It says, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. There is a way in which Christians are supposed to be holding one another accountable to the truth of God. And if they are not, it's not love. Because it's not love to let someone go off in a particular direction and continue doing the wrong thing. In our house, would you believe that in our house, there are people that go around with a drum, and they drum this, screen time, sugar, video games, screen time, sugar, video games, and if we don't give in to that, they threaten to burn the house down, <laughs> but if I do give in to that, if I cave, it's really not loving, my job is to love them because love always moves towards the truth. And that's what God's people are meant to do with one another, to point to the way of truth. Love has to be after the truth. And so it is with the church. To have brothers and sisters in part means that they have a claim on you. That's what Lucian was saying was so offensive, that these brothers and sisters would have a claim on my possessions. And we actually do, because verse 13 says, Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality means literally share your possessions with those in God's family who are in need. That's radical to say. But when we think about our biological families, we know that that's, that's true. Like, we're supposed to do that. And we may not be very good at it. But in the Wozniki family, if you're a part of the family, then we have to share we have to share clothes, and we have to share computer, and we have to share food, and we have to share... We have to share everything. And this group of people, biblically, the followers of Jesus, somehow in this period of time, they begin adopting this same mindset as well. And Lucia says, what in the world? That this group of people would have a claim, that this group of people would have a claim on your time and your money and your possessions. We are a non-private community. Is that radical? But not just on those things, on your emotions as well. And so thirdly, it's not safe. Being a part of the family of God is not safe. And you think about that right in the middle of all this talk about community. You've got a, really, a couple of really interesting exhortations. If you look at verse 11, it says, Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Those verses are, are not just general admonitions about Christian growth. They're showing up in the middle of a discourse about biblical community. So what that means is that if we take the Bible seriously about what it means to have relationships with God's people, then you're going to find yourself relatively exhausted. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn or weep with those who weep. That means that when the kids are struggling and marriages are struggling in the family of God or someone has lost a loved one, there's this picture of involvement where I become wrapped up in the stuff that's happening in your life and you're in mine. There's this emotional identification so deep that what is happening to them is happening to me. 
And so as you open yourself up to that, you might be thinking, this is so hard. And what I want to remind you of this morning is no. That is when you are on mission. Our mission is to know God, grow together, and to reach our world. And if we are growing together, that means we are opening ourselves up to relationships that are not safe, where we might feel hurt and wounded and emotionally identifying with people in ways that are painful. And it's rejoicing too. It's trying to rejoice with somebody who's rejoicing when we're not there. I can remember my parents. uh, I think my twins were like two or three years old. And I can remember my parents calling me on the phone. Usually they would call and they would say something like, hey, you're a pastor. Would you pray for so-and-so? They're they're really struggling right now in their family. Your cousin's being deployed. Would you pray for them? Uh, Uncle Tim, he's got whatever. Can you pray for him? (laughs) And it'd be like, fine, yeah, I can pray. Then, then, uh, and I would, you know, feel some of that. But this one particular call, mom says, guess what? We have won an all-expense-paid trip to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, Florida, California. So it's, it's flight, it's hotel, it's the whole thing. And my, probably my second favorite team in college football is the Wisconsin Badgers. They were in the game. And so she starts calling while she's there. Guess what? The weather's so beautiful. Oh, guess what? This restaurant, it was amazing. And the game. And just every day, a new phone call. And it was really... <laughs> Yeah, great, Mom. My twins, they just dumped two bowls of Cheerios on the floor. They're wiping their dirty diaper on on, on the wall again. So I'm so sorry that I can't rejoice with what you're rejoicing with right now. It's hard sometimes to connect emotionally when you're the one who's hurting inside. And when you see other brothers and sisters doing well, sometimes it's hard to jump in with them. But this is the family nature of Christianity. It's not safe. A willingness to have your heart broken that other people would have a claim on you. Do you see how radical this is? It's pretty extreme stuff. To sense this bond and to give others a brotherly and sister, sisterly love. How are, we, how are you doing? How are we doing as a church? Are you open to that? Are you really open to that? Letting people in in that way. How would your kids say you're doing with that? When they look at the way that you're interacting on social media, when they think about the way that you're communicating uh, with other people, what would they say about your life? Well, lastly, this passage is not just about the way we relate to other Christians, but Paul says it's also about the way that we're meant to relate to those outside the faith, to those who are opposed to us or persecute us or reject us. How do we relate to them? And Paul says that we are supposed to relate with grace and love. There's probably two options that we're tempted with whenever we think about the outside world and the way that they either mock us or condemn us or, uh, you know, uh, uh, accuse us of being intolerant. And our temptation in those situations is probably one, to cave in and to adjust the way that we adjust our own standards, or to condemn the world around us. And so what that would look like, you know, if you're a part of King's Chapel, I would say that we're always going to have, uh, we're always going to have a a bit of exclusivity about who gets in, and this is it. That to be a part of King's Chapel, it means that you are willing to say, I am a sinner in desperate need of the gospel of grace. 
And Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation and that God's word is authoritative. And so that would be an exclusive truth. And for us in any way to muddy that would mean that in a myriad of ways, we would say the cultural pressures and voices are causing us to change. The other option is to condemn through judgment and avoidance and a sense of moral superiority. And while those are easier options in the way we relate to other people, this has nothing to do with the heart of Jesus. The heart of Jesus and the extreme makeover that is meant to mark his people is about embracing our distinctive truths about Jesus and living them out more consistently, gentle and lowly. I love uh, the, uh, the famous interview that Tim Keller did with uh, CNN right after the 9-11 attacks. And CNN said, you know, you're a Christian pastor, and so what you're telling people week in and week out is that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and life. It's an exclusive claim. That's who gets into heaven. Don't you think that that's a pretty fundamentalist view of the world? Isn't that what the terrorists believe that brought those towers down? And the way that Tim Keller responded, he said, no. It's not true that fundamentals lead to violence. It simply depends on what your fundamental is. Have you ever seen an Amish terrorist? And the answer is no. You never will because their fundamental is a man dying on the cross for his enemies. A man who refused to strike back even when they crucified him. And that's what's meant to set us apart as well as the community of God, that our fundamental truth would be, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse, verse 14. He doesn't just say, don't take revenge on your enemies. Don't just not hurt them, but actually bless them, love them, respect them, give them grace. And so Paul says, if you understand the fundamentals of the gospel, you're going to bless. You're not going to curse. You're never going to show disdain or cynicism for the people who disagree with you, even people who hurt you and are violently against you. How would your kids say you're doing with that? How would your social media wall say you're doing with that? What would people pick up from you in your offhanded comments about the way you engage with others on the other side of the political aisle? And part of the way that looks is in verse 19 through 21. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul says that if you believe there is anyone in your life who could be brought down a notch or two, somebody who could use a little judgment in their life, um, from the mechanic who cheats you or the spouse who spurns you or the business partner who lies to you, we are not to extract the pound of flesh that we so desperately want to. We are not to repay evil for evil. And if you believe that what they need most is a little more conviction in their life, just to see the error of their ways. What they really need are burning coals dumped on their heads. Then this is the way to do it. 
love, sacrifice, humility. Do not return evil for evil. You see, what makes the Christian community unique is not just the way that we relate to people on the inside, but to the way that we relate to one another, to others on the outside. Where do we get the power to live that way? How do we experience that extreme makeover? You know, I think what this passage tells us right from the beginning is it's got to be inside out transformation. Verse 9 says, let your love be genuine. Some versions say, let your love be sincere or without hypocrisy. But really the Greek word there means, let your love come from the inside, from a true and authentic source. And so what we've been talking about this morning is the failure of family. It's the underlying failure of blood relatives to give the unconditional, intimate, and endlessly patient love that we were made for. That's what we really need. Think about family, what family is supposed to give us. Non-selectivity means unconditional love. That's what family is meant to give us. Non-privacy is about intimacy and closeness. And non-safety means you will stick with people even when they're at their worst. And you're at your worst. And family after family in the Bible is blowing it. Right from the beginning, Cain takes out Abel. Joseph is sold into slavery. Jacob deceives Esau. Amnon rapes his sister. David's son drives him out. And over and over again, we see bloodshed and the failure of family. But when Jesus comes, something new happens. He's called our older brother. And in Hebrews chapter 12, it says that you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood from Cain was shed because of self-protection and pride in isolation, me first living from his brother. And it's the failure of family that causes Abel's blood to hit the ground. And when it did, it shook all of creation and demanded justice. But when the blood of Jesus hits the ground, a willing sacrifice for the people of God, his innocent blood calls out for something new. It calls out for mercy. And grace from the Father. Because now it's all been paid for. When Jesus' blood pays for my sin, it makes a new demand of the Father. It demands grace. That all the privileges of being in the family, acceptance, unconditional love, would be showered upon his people intimately and endlessly in the patient love of God. And so this inside-out living happens through the Spirit of Jesus cleansing us, testifying to us that we are God's children, fully forgiven and accepted by God. You know, the only way that we can really love someone well is when we're not craving their acceptance. We're not having to hang on when they hang on to them when they're reject, hanging on to whether they'll reject us or approve of us. And when we are hanging on to those things and we're worried about it, our strategy becomes self-protection. Safety, isolation, play it safe. But that's not freedom. 
To live empowered by the Spirit is to be too appropriate and to lay hold of the absolute acceptance that we have in Christ. If God has accepted you, why would you ever need that person's acceptance at school? Why would you ever need that that business partner's acceptance? Why would you ever need approval? You are free to love in powerful, powerful ways. So how do we receive that? You know, the beginning of chapter 12 tells us. It says, in view of God's mercy, that's how we receive it. We have to be thinking and viewing God's mercy. Do you know that on these, uh, the Extreme Makeover show, that some people, some families actually said, no thanks. I know our house is kind of run down. But honestly, what you're talking about doing to our house, it's just too much. It would cost too much down the road. I'm pretty uncomfortable with what you're going to do. And I don't want my house to look that different in my neighborhood. My neighborhood are going to think I'm crazy and weird. Because my house is going to look like what we saw versus everybody else. And Paul says, in view of God's mercy, do not be conformed to the pattern of the world. It is so easy for us to say no to the transformation of God because we would settle for conforming to the desires and dreams of the world around us. We want to date like everybody else dates. We want the end product of our lives to be just what everybody else is. Our kids to turn out just like the houses to look just like everybody else's. And Paul enters into that and says, do not be conformed. But here's the new offer. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by an inner transformational work of the Holy Spirit. The only people who do that, who sign up for that, are people who look at their life and say, I am dilapidated, I am broken down, and honestly, a good stiff wind would blow my life over. I need renovation. Is that you? Or would you just rather keep your life pretty good the way everybody else is in the world around you? In view of God's mercy, do you sense a need for God's mercy today? The invitation then is to come to Jesus for transformation. Let's pray. God, I would confess um, that most of the time, I don't want anything to do with transformation. I just want a pretty good life. And I want successful kids. And I want to be out of debt. And I want financial security. And I want people to like me. Oh, Lord God, that's not your dream for me. And that's not your dream for these people. And God, we praise you and thank you that because of the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, that you could sweep through us with your Holy Spirit and bring about new desires and new convictions and new power to relate within the family of God in a way that would be utterly remarkable and that we have new power for relating to those outside the Christian community. We need it. We ask for it. We pray you would bring it this morning. In Christ's name, amen.